Holiday House Books for Young People presents John McGoran, author of the Spliced Trilogy, Spliced, Splintered, and Spiked, in conversation with editor Kelly Lachman. Hello, everybody. My name is Kelly Lachman, and I'm an editor with Holiday House Books, and I'm really excited to introduce to you a great friend of mine and author named John McGoran, who is here with us today to chat a bit about his trilogy, Spliced. It's a three-book sci-fi series, and John, we're really excited to hear what you have to say. You've just wrapped up the series with uh, the third book. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. I'm really happy to be here. John, as I said, this is a trilogy, and uh, I'm hoping that you can talk to us a bit about book one, which sets a pretty incredible scenario and scene right off the bat. Yeah, thanks. So Spliced is a the first book in the series, uh, is uh, set a few decades from now, uh, a near future in a, an America that has been altered by climate change and various other things. Um, the, uh, like the idea at the center of the book is that genetic engineering technology has matured to the point where it's available on the street as a form of body modification. Uh, and you get this subculture of, uh, of mostly young people who call themselves chimeras who alter themselves in different ways by getting spliced with uh, different bits of animal DNA. Um, they do this for a bunch of different reasons. And, and that's part of what the books is about is why they would do that. Um, but they are confronted by a pretty brutal b- backlash, um, mostly taking the form of an a organization called Humans for Humanity, um, led by a politically ambitious tech billionaire named Howard Wells. And their primary response to, uh, to the chimeras is to exploit them as a kind of a wedge issue for political gain. Uh, and that backlash takes the form of a, a law called the Genetic Heritage Act, which would seek to, and does, uh, define anyone whose DNA is not 100% human as no longer legally a person. Um, so uh, the uh, Howard Wells, the, the guy at the forefront of the backlash, um, his, has made his fortune uh, selling computer implants. So one of the things I think is kind of an interesting part of the series is that you get this, uh, you know, this one group of kind of transhumanists who have augmented themselves with computer implants trying to label this other group of transhumanists who've been spliced with animal DNA uh, as non-human um, and, you know, the hypocrisy that's baked into that tension. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it all kind of takes the form, as you well know, uh, in, of, of, a, uh, of a thriller. The, um, you know, the main characters are a, a bunch of teens uh, primarily, uh, Jimmy Corcoran is the young woman who, uh, she's 16 at the start of the first book. Um, and, uh, her best friend, Dell, uh, best friend and, you know, maybe burgeoning love interest. We'll see about that. Um, he has this horribly abusive father, uh, and he runs away from him and decides he's going to get spliced. He's going to become a chimera. And uh, Jimmy is, you know, aghast at that. She, she doesn't know any chimeras. She thinks the whole thing is kind of creepy. Um, but she goes after him and follows him, tries to prevent him from getting spliced. Uh, but in so doing, she starts to get to know some of the chimeras and befriend them. And um, a lot of, uh, makes a lot of important relationships and a lot of discoveries about the world and about herself. 
Can you talk a little bit more about splicing as a technology? Because as, as you mentioned, a lot of these kids, uh, the teenagers are getting spliced for various reasons. Um, and one of those reasons is just that it is it can have some extremely cool effects. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and splicing as a real technology that exists today, but, but how you've taken it a step or two further in this series? Yeah, sure. So I had uh, I had written a series of adult science thrillers, uh, Drift, Dead Out, and Dust Up, that kind of focused on biotech uh, in various ways. Um, and I did a lot of research on genetic engineering and gene splicing when I was doing that. And while I was doing that, the CRISPR technology was coming to the fore, uh, which which really opened the doors to a lot of of new. Um, kind of broaden the horizons of possibility in genetic engineering and gene splicing. Uh, at the same time, I learned about uh, uh, biohackers, which is the kind of uh, subculture, just like the, you know, in the early days of uh, home computing, there were people like Stephen Jobs and, and uh, Bill Gates tinkering with computers, building them in their garages. There are people who are doing that with genetic engineering today. Uh, and a lot of them know exactly what they're doing, and maybe they work at a university or a government lab during the day, and then uh, on their own time they have side projects. But a lot of them are just people throwing stuff together and seeing what happens. Um, and that's where the idea initially came from. Um, the kind of the scientific template that I use is, is gene therapy, uh, you know, which uses some forms of gene therapy use a virus to kind of uh, like a carrier virus to implant a gene snippet into, into someone's genome. Um, and that's where, the, um, that's where the idea first came from. Uh, and as soon as I had the idea, I knew that if, if that was a possibility, if people could use that as a form of body modification, you know, I was looking around at people with these like extreme gauges and implants and horns. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, really extreme body modification that's available out there. I realized that if something like this was uh, obtainable, that they would obtain it, that they would do it. Um, and, and I just had to kind of figure out why. Um, I realized that it would probably take a few decades for the technology to mature to that point. Uh, and I realized right off the bat that, you know, looking around at, at the way the world is going, that the uh, the nut of climate change would not have been cracked by then. You know, people don't seem to have the will to take it on. Um, so if I did not incorporate climate change into this near future, I was kind of, you know, denying it now, which sure. I definitely didn't want to do. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where the, the main, how the world uh, set up. Does that, is, does that answer the question? Yeah, um, I, you know, in, in, in a, a bit more of a specific, on a more specific level, um, Jimmy Corcoran, um, she starts off the series, she's 16, and uh, she tries to stop her friend Del from getting spliced. And she has different reasons for this. Um, one of them is that she is fearful for Del's uh the concept of, of his humanity and his existence. He, he, if he gets spliced, would be threatened by this Genetic Heritage Act legislation. Um, but also she herself has reservations just uh, on a very deeply personal level about altering uh, one's body um, in that way, uh, because a lot of these people who end up getting spliced, um, they have visible um, alterations. Some um, have grow feathers, some their skin changes, if, uh, depending on what sort of creature that they get um, spliced with. And um, I think that Jimmy's uh, 
coming around in this book um, to, you know, get to know people who are spliced. Chimeras um, is, is a very powerful thread in the book. Um, and at the same time, you, you talk a little bit about the climate change and the world that Jimmy exists in. Um, you have it set just a few decades from now, but, um, but the world has changed in both ways that we might expect and ways that are unexpected. And I think your world building is so powerful. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the world in which these um, young people exist. Yeah, sure. Um, the uh, Well, first, I want to talk about Jimmy for a second. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about her. Um, and I think, I mean, I love that character. I, I, um, I've really become quite attached to Jimmy. I find it really helpful when I'm writing about, uh, if I'm writing a book with a lot of ideas in it, uh, that it often helps to to start out with a protagonist who is not so familiar with those ideas. So that instead of, um, you know, if the main character is an expert in the, in whatever area the book is about, then there's no real organic way for that character to share the information that needs to come across with the reader. If it feels a lot more like exposition. Uh, whereas if you start with a protagonist who knows, you know, who's familiar, who is as unfamiliar with these areas uh, as the reader is, then the reader and the protagonist kind of go on this journey of discovery together. And I think it, uh, it provides a lot more opportunity to learn things in an organic way um, and to kind of feel like you're in it together as opposed to being talked to. Uh, And one of the things with, with Jimmy also, it's not just her, uh, you know, kind of technical unfamiliarity with it. It's her moralistic and ethical unfamiliarity with it. These are kind of, it's a foreign construct to her. She hasn't really thought about it all that much. Uh, So when she kind of starts out, she has, you know, a bit of the knee-jerk reaction that a a lot of other people might, that, you know, they're kind of skeeved by the chimeras or weirded out. They don't know what to make of them. And uh, as she gets to know them as people, and as she gets to understand where they're coming from and what they're going through and, you know, seeing the world through their eyes a little bit more, uh, she gains a much deeper understanding. And I think that's a, a really powerful part of the book. As far as the world building goes, I, I found that, you know, a fascinating exercise. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of tricky sometimes when you're writing these books is, you know, you do want to put everything in there. You want to put all your thinking. How did you arrive at these things? You know, um, and a lot, all <laughs> invariably, that's not a great idea because it gets boring. You know, people don't want to see the scrap, you know, the, 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 the your, your scratch pad, you know, they just want to see the, the finished result, you know? And I think it's the same thing with, with, uh, you know, character building, you, you know, when you create a character, you do a lot of work that doesn't end up on the page for good reason. Uh, so for this world, I really, I, I had had this idea of suburban blight. You know, I've always been fascinated by the, the, the kind of the blight that overtook America's inner cities in the middle of the last century and, uh, and what factors led to that. And it was a lot of factors, you know, I mean, there was uh, uh, political decisions and technological developments and social uh, ideas and racism of different sorts and classism of different sorts and, uh, you know, just bad choices. And, and there's all these different decisions, all these different factors come together uh, to, affect these profound and, you know, often wholly unintentional effects. Um, so I wanted to kind of uh, flip that. And, and I thought about like, well, what are the, what are some of the factors that could have led to uh, an abandonment of the suburban sprawl that, that is such a, a part of America? 
And part of it was energy scarcity. And part of it was new technologies to deal with that energy scarcity, like new energy transmission technologies. Um, but part of it was also uh, climate change and, and certain places become less habitable. And also depopulation, which I think we'll talk more about later. Um, but um, the, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by the idea of pandemics and what impact they can have on society. Um, and as the series starts out, there is there was a devastating flu pandemic, uh, you know, sometime in the backstory of the book, you know, 10 years or so, 10, 12 years before the book starts. Um, and in fact, you know, some of the main characters who would have been main characters in the book or important characters are gone because they were they, were, they died in that pandemic. Um, but that also kind of went into this depopulation that made it kind of logical to uh, for society to kind of abandon swaths of territory. Uh, and um, so, you know, in the books, the Zerbs or the suburbs are, you know, the, the some of the towns have kind of coalesced into these very discrete, you know, little fenced in mini cities. Uh, but all the kind of sprawl between them has largely been abandoned uh, and kind of left to be reclaimed by nature. Uh, and that's also where a lot of the uh, a lot of the chimeras live because you can squat there and you can live for cheap or free uh, and right. you can kind of get back to nature a little bit. Um, it's definitely a getting back to nature, as I recall, because you paint the human impact on these areas as, as so spare at this point. But um, but the nature, as you say, has taken over in forms of I, I I'm remembering foliage especially, um, just a lot a lot of plants. Yes. Um, but at the same time, um, there's a, a paucity of animal life. Species are becoming extinct rapidly, and so uh, that's that is also part of the impetus for splicing for some people uh, to preserve in some way the biodiversity that is uh, rapidly becoming extinct on the planet due to humanity's action and inaction. Yeah, absolutely. We're, you know, and we're already in that, you know, the scientists say we're in the midst of an extinction event that's unprecedented in earth history in the, in the, you know, the history of the planet. Uh, there have been these massive extinction events, and I guess, you know, a meteor wiping out the dinosaurs, whatever, 65 million years ago, whenever it was, is the closest corollary we have to the level of extinction that's already underway. So, yeah, so that was a big part of it. You know, and, I, and going back to kind of the world, the world building, you know, I knew that climate change was going to be a part of the book. Uh, and that was going to manifest in different ways. And among them is, you know, uh, rising sea levels and changes in weather patterns. But again, a big part of that is these, this, these widespread extinctions. And when I was kind of trying to figure out, well, you know, I knew that if people could get spliced, they would, but I didn't know who initially and I didn't know how or why, excuse me. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I realized that young people would be the, the ones most likely to embrace something like this. And then as I thought about the effects of climate change on the planet, I realized that, yes, with, with all these extinctions going, going on, especially, you know, when you start losing your megafauna, uh, you know, when you, when, if there are no giraffes, if there are no rhinoceroses, if there are no polar bears, you know, uh, that is going to be really, really impactful on the human psyche, you know, globally. And it made perfect sense to me that that would, that would be part of the inspiration for a lot of the people who decide to get spliced. If I can steer us back to setting a little bit, your second book in the trilogy, uh, Splintered, takes place in, in large, well, it 
a, a measurable percentage of the book takes place in an abandoned town um, in Pennsylvania that you have called Centerville, but it's actually based on a real place called Centralia. Uh, and uh, I find this this spot such a fascinating example of of what people can do to to the world uh, in an effort to control it uh, and have it spiral out of control. And I I would love to hear more about uh, what prompted you to use this as a setting. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been wanting to write about Centralia, you know, for twenty years, you know, uh, or longer even since I first found out about it. Uh, so Centralia is this old coal mining town in Pennsylvania that has been abandoned slash evacuated. There was a, uh, there's a coal fire underneath it. Uh, you know, so basically the, the coal mine itself caught fire and the, it, it kind of reached this critical mass of temperature and burnable fuel that it is just, it's going to burn. There's no way really to put it out. There's no, you know, uh, so basically it's just been left to burn it's been burning, I think since like the early sixties. And, um, you know, at first, you know, there was, it was smaller and they tried to, they tried to put it out in various means and then they just decided, Oh, we'll let it burn out. Not, not thinking that it would continue, but it just, it spread throughout underneath the entire town. And you started getting these, you know, uh, hot vents with toxic gases coming out. And, uh, you know, a kid almost fell into a sinkhole or he did fall in, he was rescued, but it was dicey. And, uh, and it was decided that the town had to be forcefully evacuated and everybody was relocated and the town was kind of closed off. And actually they're just now, they're, they're in the process of, of bulldozing what's left and, and kind of covering it up, which is kind of tragic, I think. But one of the things that was fascinating as I was researching the book was that there's, I think, between 40 and 60 of these fires burning around the world. Uh, you know, in, in the former Soviet Union, there's a bunch. In China, there's a bunch. There, you know, it's not, a, it's not an unusual occurrence. And it's just, you know, from, the, from an environmental standpoint, it's just terrible. It's just pouring these, you know, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, uh, you know, because basically it's just, it's coal burning, unfettered. For the book, you know, I don't want to give away too much, um, but I, I had this idea you know, a lot of what the uh, what the series is about is about uh, kind of dehumanizing the other, which I think is a tragically common human tendency uh, to uh, to kind of say that people who are not like you are less than you or are less than human. That notion has has led to some of the most horrific tragedies in human history. You know, including some of the genocides and attempted genocides. And that's kind of at the core of, of this struggle between the, the chimeras and the people who are kind of uh, leading the backlash against them and, uh, you know, and seeking to exploit them. And in, in Spliced, you know, that exploitation takes uh, one terrible form uh, and in Splintered, it takes another. And um, the, you know, again, you kind of, uh, you know, you don't, you don't want to include all your, uh, your scratch pad work in the book. Um, but I did a lot of thought work in kind of creating a construct, which I thought, you know, I think I, hopefully in the book, it's, uh, it's intuitive and it makes perfect sense, you know, in the, in the, you know, um, couched the way it is, you know, surrounded by the factors that, that are set up. 
um, that there is there are resources left in in those played out mines that uh, that are still valuable, but that the environment down there is prohibitive to to work in. So who do you send down there? You know, well, you send down these people who are uh, you've def- you've defined as less than human. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, another thing that, that went into it and I, and I actually early on, I, uh, um, I, I really wanted to try to fit this in there and it just didn't work out. And I, it's an idea that I might use elsewhere. Um, but, uh, I think they're called ghost miners in the, uh, South African gold mines. You know, there's such poverty that, and gold is such a, you know, uh, valuable commodity that there are these kind of illegal miners who sneak into the gold mines uh, in South Africa and they'll just stay underground for years. And basically they live down there and they, you know, I guess they're the people that they, uh, you know, and they're kind of illicitly mining gold and getting food and supplies from other people. But it's just like this terrible, terrible existence that is really kind of forced on them by circumstance because there's no other way to make a living as they see it. But I just found that horrific, and that kind of gave me some of the inspiration for uh, for the construct at the center of of Splintered uh, and at the center of uh, <laughs> Centerville and Centralia. Right. <laughs> can you um, can you give us an overview of the book? Yeah. So um, in, uh, in you know in the first book in Spliced, Jimmy kind of develops a lot of deep and meaningful friendships with some of the chimeras that she meets, and really becomes a part of and a welcome part of uh, the, this, this chimera community. Uh, one of the ideas that, that the book does touch on is that, you know, she is not welcomed by everybody. Uh, and uh, there are those who kind of uh, resent her as, as being a part of, um, as being involved in their community because she's not a chimera. Uh, and that's one of the, you know, one of the dilemmas at the, at the core of the whole series. Is Jimmy going to get spliced? Uh, does she, should she, does she want to, become a chimera. And it's something that I wrestled with in each of the books. Uh, and you'll have to read them to figure out if it <laughs> doesn't. Um, well, you won't. <laughs> you right. <laughs> I may have a heads up. Yeah. Among the other people who she becomes friends with is this character, Doc Guzman, who is a delicensed medical doctor who basically treats chimeras. Uh, the, uh, in the world of the books, the chimeras are kind of excluded from the uh, conventional medical system. The doctors don't want to treat them because they don't have to. The insurers don't want to cover them because they don't have to. You know, their physiognomy or physiology could be slightly different from regular humans. So there's a certain, you know, there's a certain kernel of rational, you know, rational thought behind that. But it's mostly, you know, that kernel is used as an excuse more than as as an actual justification. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the greatest manifestations of um, <laughs> of excuse making. I think and, and otherization of people who have gotten spliced. I love the way you weave it into very mundane questions of insurance and care. And um, so, but continue, Doc Guzman. He's he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think a lot of times the devil really is in the details. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, for sure. And one of the things you know, that, on a similar note, just as an aside. Uh, one of the things that that was really important to me, and that I really um, uh, that I really enjoyed incorporating into the books, was you know there's this law that is kind of being forced through that the Genetic Heritage Act that that labels chimeras as non-persons 
But one of the things that I really liked about it is that the, the law is really, really poorly written. And I think that so often, you know, the people with the worst intent, thankfully, are, are incompetent as well. And uh, so it's just like this half-baked law that, that fails to foresee most of the practical ramifications that it's calling into, into being. And I, I love that. I think that's a big part of, uh, you know, the incompetence of evil. Yeah. So you have these, uh, these people called fixers who, like Doc, uh, who is a doctor for chimeras. And a big part of what they do is uh, there are ways in the early days, you know, or in the early hours of a splice, in the first 24 to 48 hours, a splice can be reversed by one of these fixers. And that factors prominently in spliced. But they also, they care for the chimeras. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this character, Doc, uh, fills that. And he's kind of a wise elder as well. And what happens is this stranger shows up at the beginning of Splintered, who uh, he's a chimera and he's dying. Uh, and nobody knows why. He just kind of stumbles into the coffee shop where the chimeras all hang out. In, uh, and he's in a young person. Philadelphia. He's, he's a young person. He's a exactly. teenager. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Doc tries to save him. Uh, they bring him back to his clinic and they do it. They try to do what they can, but he dies. And, uh, you know, just by chance, the, uh, the police show up for, uh, do, for an unrelated matter. And they find this dead young chimera that Doc has been treating, and they charge Doc with murder. Uh, And then it comes to light that this kid had been treated at a hospital. Uh, He was wearing a hospital bracelet from a hospital out in the middle of of Pennsylvania. And it's a hospital that has put it out there in part in response to some of the malfeasance that went on in the first book. There's been kind of a program to provide medical care to, uh, to chimeras. Uh, and this kid seems to have gone through that hospital, but they deny having any record of him. So Jimmy realizes that what probably happened was that what, however they treated him, since Doc really didn't do anything to him, that that led to his death. Uh, and she wants to prove that he had been a patient there. And she and Rex, who is one of her friends, uh, who, who she, you know, a virgin love interest from the first book, uh, and some of the other friends who she met in the first, who she, who she made, you know, became friends with in the first book, uh, they go out there to try to get evidence that this kid had been at this hospital. And when they do that, they, uh, they uncover a really ghastly plan to exploit chimeras in, uh, in ways that, uh, that I probably should not go into for the sake of <laughs> avoiding spoilers. Fair enough. Well, you you certainly don't shy away from the ugliness of exploitation in this series. Um, you don't shy away from politics either. Uh, and you've touched a bit on the shoddy legislation that's written, you know, basically around this central question of who is human, what qualifies as human, and who gets to decide the answer to that question. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think we're at the, we're at a really interesting point in in history, in our social and technological history, where some of the technologies in the book, like the the splicing and the computer implants, are they're definitely on the horizon. They they're coming uh, in some way or another, and you know, at some point there there is you know you can alter yourself to an extent that that maybe you're no longer human, you know. Uh, at some point, that question is going to become a practical reality. 
which is really a stunning thing to to think about. You know, in literature that you know that has been uh, you know Island of Dr. Moreau is you know an obvious precedent or precursor to to these books. But back then, it wasn't. You know, it was an interesting thought experiment and a, and an important one. You know, and obviously, you know, Frankenstein and, you know, I mean, more recently Blade Runner, you know, I think that that is kind of a core of, uh, of the human experience is wondering what is humanity. Um, but now we're at this moment, we're on the cusp of a, a time when these things, which have been these esoteric thought experiments could become actual practical considerations. You know, one of the things I like about, you know, again, these, the, the, these, uh, even the most reprehensible arguments can have these kind of kernels of legitimacy, these kernels of rational thought in them. And and I think that's what makes them that much more dangerous and that much more fascinating. So there's a scene, I think, in Spliced where Howard Wells brings up, you know, he's giving a speech and he brings up on stage this goat that has been, and, you know, right now there are, uh, there are a lot of animals that have some human DNA in them. Uh, the goats have been modified to produce human breast milk or to, uh, you know, I think goats and pigs that have been modified to to produce organs that would be suitable for transplant into humans. Uh, really powerful medical stuff that, you know, is kind of skeevy and kind of creepy. But if, you know, if you need a liver and there's not one around, then You'll take it. you're going to be all for it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I totally understand that. I think that's, yeah. a, that's a rational thing. And it, and it is powerful technology that has a lot of potential benefits to it. So he brings up on stage one of these goats that have been, you know, altered with a, a small thing of, of human DNA. He says, look, you know, I know that my opponents aren't saying that this is a, a human. You know, this goat has this tiny little bit of human DNA in it. It's not a human. And no one's trying to say that. But, you know, somewhere on the continuum between that goat who, you know, has a tiny bit of human DNA and a human with a tiny bit of animal DNA, somewhere there's a line that is no longer human. And where is that line? And the humans for humanity people they they assert that that line is at a hundred percent human DNA, which I don't even know if that you know really that's there's so much variability in human DNA that you could never uh, you know from person to person that you couldn't say that I don't think they speak in absolutism they're very black and white question. it's very black and white yes and I think that you know a lot of people are governed by you know they want a simple answer you know they and, and a lot of times people are are more concerned with the answer to a complex problem being simple than right. Uh, and a lot of people think that, that there, there is a, um, an inherent rightness to simplicity that, you know, if there's, if an answer is simple, it is more likely to be correct. And I think that we just live in a very complex world and that is not the case. But the fact is, you know, at some point humanity is going to have to decide uh, if you, you know, if your DNA is 30% something that is not human, are you still human? And maybe, you know, maybe you're not less than human. Maybe you're better than human. Maybe you're just different. But those questions are going to, are going to have really powerful answers, uh, really important answers. You know, one of the things that I did a lot of research into, uh, just as kind of a, the ethical and moral underpinning of the book is the animal personhood movement which is a fascinating thing. And, and people think of animal personhood and they're thinking, oh, there's these bunch of crazy lawyers and they think that animals are people. And that's not what they're saying. Uh, they're not saying that animals are people, but they're saying, you know, animals aren't cinder blocks. You know, a yeah. dog is not a person, but a dog is not an object either. It's a living thing, you know, and it has to be, it should have a special place 
in society, in, in the law, uh, yeah. and in all the things, you know, the ways that we define things. You know, you can, you can throw a brick down a well and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you, if you throw a dog down a well, that's wrong. There's a difference. And it's subtle and it's, it's a complex thing to think about. And it's easy to dismiss it, but I think that it, you know, there is legitimacy there. I think it's undeniable. Walking this road with uh, you, John, and these characters has been a very interesting and exciting experience. And I think about representation and um, what the idea of a chimera could represent to readers, because we all... Even if we know the books well, we, we will take away our own interpretations of it. And I, I wonder, from your author's perspective as the creator of these characters, um, what do you see Chimera's representing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot, a lot of parallels between the, what, what's happening in these books and what's happening around us today. Uh, and I really wanted to address some of, some of that. And... You know, so I think that these books are about, they're about xenophobia and they're about othering and they're about people trying to capitalize on our differences and, and exacerbate our differences and, and pit people against each other uh, for the gain of somebody else. You know, one of the things that, that uh, it's been striking to me, that, you know, I've read reviews where people have said, well, clearly this is a metaphor for race or ethnicity or gender fluidity or gender identity or sexuality or uh, immigration status or, uh, you know, uh, any one of a number of other things. And I, my intention was that it would kind of serve as a metaphor for all of those things because I think it really doesn't serve as a metaphor for any single one of them. You know, whenever you get specific, then, then the, the flaws in the metaphor start to arise. Because apart from anything else, you know, it's, it's, a blo- it's a plot-driven book. You know, I think the characters are, are essential and the themes are essential, but the plot is essential as well. And things had to make sense in the world of the book. Uh, so the things that serve as metaphor for other you know, aspects of society or dynamics or people or whatever, you know, I hope it does work as a metaphor, but it's a broad metaphor and not a specific metaphor. It's a metaphor about all of the othering uh, that goes on in society and all of the ways in which some people try to put a wedge between other people for, for whatever reason. And I think it's, a, you know, that's really at the heart of the book. And I hope that people who are dealing with this from any direction find something that they can identify with and, and take with them out of these books. But I do, you know, I do recognize that when you get into the specific, none of them are really appropriate. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of part of the, you know, with the pitfalls of metaphor, you know, as you, as you make something work as a plot construct, uh, the more that you make it a practical reality in the world of your book, the more you divorce it from that which you know you you seek to uh, represent as metaphor. When you talk about othering in this series, um, a big part of it is based in biology and biological science, um, but also a lot in tech and um, and the phenomenon of a of the digital divide uh, factors in heavily in these books. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a, a big part of the book. Among the many ideas that are in the series is uh, is wealth disparity, and the digital divide is is a big part of that. And uh, you know, in in today's world, the digital divide 
refers primarily to a lack of uh, adequate access to technology, to the internet, to information um, uh, that is based on class. That you know, those who don't have the financial resources don't have the information resources. And you know, in a society that is increasingly dependent on tech, those gaps are kind of self-widening. You know, the less access you have, the less access you're going to have. You know, one of the other interesting parts of the world building in the series is that uh, there is no internet anymore, uh, and there are no cell phones, and the uh, and that's something that <laughs> that's a decision I made for a number of reasons. Uh, in part because I did it because uh, it can it's a lot easier to plot <laughs> in a yes. world where yes, yeah. uh <laughs> communication, no matter where you are. Um, but also because I do, you know, we've seen the, the, I do have a sense that our, uh, kind of information technology infrastructure is really creaky and that, you know, you see data breaches all the time. You see, uh, you know, malware attacks all the time, ransomware, all this stuff. And I've been fascinated with the idea that we might at some point find ourselves at a time, you know, when we look back at this, uh, you know, for, just from a time when, when it's no longer available, whether it's uh, techn- like technically no longer available or financially, economically no longer available or just not trusted or whatever. And so I was exploring that idea and also kind of exploring the idea of the well plants, which are these very expensive computer implants uh, that, that the wealthy can afford. And I realized this, that served as a great metaphor for today's digital divide. Uh, it's much more stark. Uh, you know, the technology is much more advanced. It's something that's implanted into your head instead of, you know, carried around in your pocket or your whatever, your jacket. But it also, it means that in this world, all the benefits of the internet, all the benefits of cell phones, you know, access to information, access to communication to other people, those things are only available to the wealthy. And I do think that, you know, you know one of the ills in society today is that we do have this this growing, growing wealth chasm uh, between the haves and the have-nots or, or between the, the haves a whole lot and the haves not so much. Uh, you know, people, the billionaire class is growing exponentially and everybody else is kind of stagnating or getting poorer. So, uh, you know, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting way to look at it. And I think the, the ramifications are, are really uh, important as well. One of, you know, one of the other things that this kind of touches on is the impact of smartphones on society and the impact of smartphones on individuals and how individuals interact. You know, there's been a lot of fascinating science that shows that, that people's brains start to function differently and then start to be structured differently depending on what technology they have access to. Uh, your memory works in a different way if you know that you can look up things uh, later. You know, people who are, are told things, who are, who are taught in, in environments where they know they'll be able to look it up or Google it later, tend to remember things. They prioritize differently. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and if those kinds of uh, changes can manifest just from having access to a smartphone or having access to Google, what would those changes be if you had that technology implanted in your brain? So in, in Splintered, part of this uh, manifests in the, the need for scarce resources and the lengths and really depths of depravity that, that people who need these resources to get access to this tech 
are willing to go to to make that a reality. Uh, that's kind of the the economic thing that is that's the economic calculus that's at the core of the evil that happens in this book. And then uh, in uh, in the third book, we we kind of uh, take it to another level uh, and explore things in a, in a much kind of deeper and more powerful and more into a, intimate way. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to talking about book three. Um, we will do that in our next episode. Uh, but for the moment, John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and tell us about um, Jimmy and her world um, and the many, many themes, threads, and issues that you somehow managed to tackle in <laughs> about 350 pages. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been great. It's, uh, you know, you know how much I love talking about this stuff. And you know how much I love talking about it with you. It's great to kind of uh, to, to geek out over it once again and, uh, and hopefully to have some other people uh, join in the conversation and, uh, and, and hear what it is we've been talking about and thinking about and writing about and editing about you know, these last few years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, till next time. Till next time.